We'll begin with a brief summary of the book by John Witt, and then each panelist will speak for about 15 to 20 minutes. Risa will then respond to the comments before we open it up to questions from the audience. I'll introduce Risa and then our other panelists. Risa Galyubov is the John Allen Love Professor of Law and the Dean-Elect of our law school. She received her bachelor's degree from Harvard, her JD from Yale Law School, and an MA and PhD in history from Princeton. Before joining our faculty in 2003, she clerked for Judge Guido Calabresi on the Second Circuit and for Justice Stephen Breyer on the Supreme Court. In addition to the law school, she holds affiliations with the university's Miller Center of Public Affairs and the Carter Woodson Institute for African American and African American Studies. Risa is a leading scholar of the history of civil rights law whose work has been widely and enthusiastically recognized. Her first book, The Lost Promise of Civil Rights, won the Law and Society Association's J. Willard Hearst Prize and the Order of the Coif Biennial Book Award. Her current book was supported by a Guggenheim Fellowship and a Frederick Burkhart Residential Fellowship. In 2012, she served as a distinguished lecturer for the Organization of American Historians. She is also an exceptional teacher whose dedication to her students was recognized with the University of Virginia's All-University Teaching Award. Anne Coughlin is the Lewis F. Powell Professor of Law and co-directs our program in law and public service. She received um, her bachelor's degree from Tufts University, an MA from Columbia, and her JD from NYU. She clerked for Judge Newman on the Second Circuit uh, and for Justice Powell on the Supreme Court. She joined our faculty in 1996, and uh, her primary teaching and research areas are criminal law, criminal procedure, uh, feminist jurisprudence, and law and humanities. She is also a recipient of the All-University Teaching Award. Barb uh, Laura Kalman is a professor of history at the University of California, Santa Barbara. She has a BA from Pomona College, a JD from UCLA, and an MA, MPhil, and PhD from Yale. She has written extensively and insightfully on 20th century American political and constitutional history. She also writes about the history of the legal academy, brilliantly weaving together intellectual trends with institutional and social factors that shape the way law professors think, write, and teach. Professor Kalman is a former Fulbright research scholar at Tel Aviv University Law School and a Golib Research Fellow at NYU Law School and has also taught as a visitor at Yale Law School. Her books include Right Star Rising, A New Politics, 1974 to 1980, as well as a biography of Abe Fortas that won the 1991 Littleton Griswold Prize from the American Historical Association. John Fabian Witt is the Alan H. Duffy Class of 1960 Professor of Law at Yale Law School. He received his BA, JD, and PhD at Yale and clerked for Judge Pierre Laval on the Second Circuit. Before returning to Yale to teach, he was the George Wellwood Murray Professor of Legal History at Columbia. He has written prolifically on, among other things, the history of the law of armed conflict, tort law, and employment law. His most recent book, Lincoln's Code, The Laws of War in American History, 
won nearly every recognition available in American legal history, including the Bancroft Prize, the Littleton Griswold Prize, and the J. Willard Hearst Prize. His book, The Accidental Republic, Crippled Working Men, Destitute Widows, and the Remaking of American Law, won the American Society for Legal History's William Nelson Cromwell Prize, as well as the Hearst Prize. He is a former Guggenheim Fellow and Golub Research Fellow, an Organization of American Historians, Distinguished Lecturer, and a Fellow of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. Our moderator is Ted White, a David and Mary Harrison Distinguished Professor here at the law school. Uh, Ted requires no introduction and will not receive much of one, uh, but I'll note that his presence gives us, uh, by my count, three recipients of the Hearst Prize and three of the Littleton Griswold Prize on the panel, among many other awards his 15 published books have received, as well as three members of the Oliver Wendell Holmes Devise. So this is truly an all-star cast. I'll now turn the proceedings over to Professor Witt. Thank you, Dean Mahoney, for that really warm and, and uh, generous introduction. Uh, it's a real pleasure to be here today to talk about uh, Risa Galibov's new book, uh, in large part because Risa and I, well, we got into this business together, really. I think Risa tricked me into it. I, I was planning on a different career entirely, but Risa's charisma in the world of legal history brought me, uh, brought me into this in the middle of the 1990s. I can't say I regret it. Uh, it's worked out okay for both of us, I think. Um, uh, but so I, I think my charge, as I understand it, is to describe, uh, to describe this book for you. It's been pitched as a summary, but I, I plan nothing so mundane and boring as that. I, but I will hold off most of my editorializing uh, for uh, comments later, although as you'll see, it's going to be hard for me to really hold off uh, from editorializing about what really is an intellectually bracing book and a seriously thoughtful book about the role that law plays in American society, the place of politics uh, in American life, um, and the place of the marginalized in a country with powerful institutions. And all of those things come together in this really quite extraordinary, uh, quite extraordinary book. The, the book, as I understand it, is, a, is about the decline and fall of a category. And that's the, the legal category of the vagrant, the legal category of the vagrant. Um, and as such, we might think of it as a kind of a type. That is, there are lots of books about the decline and fall of categories. No one, to my knowledge, has really taken on this, the, the vagrant category. It was a brilliant choice for reasons we'll get into later. But there's a, there's a family of books to which this belongs. It might be um, uh, Grant Gilmore on the death of contract. Uh, it might be any number of works in my, the field that I teach, tort law, about the displacement of the common law of torts by administration and regulation. Uh, it might be books about the decline of a, a, a legal category called slavery. That is slavery, there's a legal category, a legal construct. Its decline and fall in the middle of the 19th century is one of the great historiographical subjects, and one of the great historical puzzles of, of, of Western history. And I think what Risa has done is introduce another legal historical puzzle. What, what happened to this category, the vagrant? Why did, where did it come from? But more importantly, why did it go away? Now, we've known for a long time something about where it came from, and it's really old. It's been around for a long time, and I, people could dispute whether it's the 14th century or the 16th century, but the point I, I want you to go away with is it was a central part 
of Anglo-American law for at least 400 years, at least 400 years, until the middle of the 20th century in the United States, it started to come unraveled. It started to come unraveled, started to become undone. And the question this book poses is why and to what effect? What is the consequence of this, uh, of this unraveling, the decline and fall of this legal category? And as I read the, the really powerful and, and, and the really powerful chapters, which are full of good stories, each chapter is the unfolding of another piece of the answer to that basic puzzle. Why does vagrancy fall apart, and what are the consequences of its, um, uh, of its decline? So I want a preview for you, although I assure you that my, my description won't match the richness of Reese's description, and so purchasing the book will in no way just reprise my summary answers, but only deepen your appreciation for the, the story. Okay, nice, there, good, good, good. Uh, um, uh, so we start uh, in 1940s California uh, with a communist left-wing soapbox speaker who's arrested, of course, for vagrancy. Um, Isidore Edelman is the first character we meet, we meet in the book, and it's an introduction to the method of the book, which is a method organized around finding people at the margins of society who end up, through the vagrancy machine, being pulled into the state and connected to the most powerful institutions uh, in American life, in particular, uh, the American uh, Supreme Court. Um, and what we find in the Edelman arrest in 1949, he's arrested in Los Angeles, we find that all of a sudden, for some interesting reasons, the United States Supreme Court is now becoming interested in the problem of vagrancy. Uh, justices like Felix Frankfurter, uh, William O. Douglas uh, um, uh, uh, and Justice Black are starting to think, Hugo Black, are starting to think about the problem of vagrancy and putting it on the country's agenda, such that someone like Isidore Edelman, who 50 years before would have been arrested and processed in a local uh, proceeding in Los Angeles and never reached uh, uh, Washington, D.C. with his complaints, um, is now being heard for, um, uh, for uh, the, the first time. And what we see from the very outset is uh, an idea that originates, interestingly, with Felix Frankfurter, that there might be a problem with vagrancy prosecutions. That's about the, the vagueness of the vagrancy statute. Vagrancy creates huge amounts of discretionary authority for the local police. And people like Frankfurter are starting to worry that there's a procedural problem, a procedural problem with this, with this, vagrancy, this vagrancy doctrine. But Risa then is going to move through a whole series of other cases. So we meet in chapter two uh, an ACLU lawyer in California named Ernest Bessig. Who, who um, presides over the ACLU's defense of a whole series of vagrancy defendants, ranging from defendants arising out of vice raids in black neighborhoods that have been singled out by the police to, um, uh, uh, to the victims of raids on gay bars uh, and the arrests of the Beats in San Francisco. And what Bessig does is Bessig leads a legislative move to abolish the vagrancy statute that's on the books in the state of California and succeeds in 1962 in abolishing that, in repealing that statute at the legislative level. But Bessig's story reveals for us a, um, well, a possible ambiguity in the story, which runs through the rest of the text in really beautiful ways. And the ambiguity is this, you can abolish vagrancy, but it turns out to be much more difficult to eliminate the discretionary authority of the police the discretionary authority of local actors, to uh, local, local officials, uh, um, to engage in the c control of their communities 
with, uh, with, with through, through and with the law, even if vagrancy is no longer in their toolkit. And what follows in the chapters that succeed is a whole panoply of characters range, ranging from shuffling Sam Thompson, a, um, a poor African-American man, 47, 48 years old, who's continually being arrested in Louisville, Kentucky, arrested for you know, virtually all the petty crimes on the books, um, ranging from loitering to disorderly conduct to public drunkenness, uh, and the crime designated as perversion uh, in the late uh, uh, in, in the. Um, in the late 1950s. Uh, he's arrested in the perfectly named Liberty End Cafe. And the book is sprinkled with these moments. How could it be possible that the vagrancy statute is enforced in the Liberty's End Cafe uh, in, um, uh, in Louisville, Kentucky? But I, I assure you it is so. Um, and what people like uh, Shuffling Sam Thompson uh, do is they, they, um, uh, they, they, they encounter characters uh, who are at the Supreme Court, uh, former clerks of the Supreme Court, men like Louis Lusky, who are engaged in the project, uh, an important lawyer in Kentucky uh, and a former Supreme Court clerk, who are engaged in the project of thinking about what the U.S. Constitution means for these vague and open-ended uh, 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 authorizations of discretionary authority for the police. Um, these isolated and disparate vagrancy prosecutions of the 1940s and 1950s run in in the 1960s to a serious new set of problems arising out of an organized movement, and that's the civil rights movement. And any number of civil rights leaders through the 1960s, including people like Fred Shuttlesworth and many others, are arrested on vagrancy charges by police leaders like Bull Connor in Birmingham, Alabama. Um, and this produces a new heightened problem for the uh, policing of vagrancy and a new heightened problem for the Supreme Court. And over the course of the next a decade, from the early 60s into the early 1970s, um, the problem of civil rights, the problem of sexuality in the law, problems of poverty in the law, all get run through this vagrancy doctrine. Uh, and the Supreme Court continually thinks through the 1960s about taking up the problem, uh, each of these problems, through the lens of vagrancy. One nice piece to Reese's story is, as I'm telling it now, you might imagine that it's a story of the decline and fall of a category that's uh, uh, continuous, a move from a ca an old-fashioned category that allowed the police to enforce order in communities continuously to its uh, demise and eventual decline and, and, and abolition. Um, but it's not so. It turns out in the late 1960s, as the crime wave picks up, a real question arises for police uh, departments all around the country, for local elected officials all around the country, about whether vagrancy was actually critically constitutive of communities' efforts to fight crime. Was vagrancy law the way that local communities policed against more serious crime and kept people who might become more serious criminals off the streets? And so in the late 1960s, there's a real risk that the vagrants, the move against vagrancy will fall apart and collapse. But then in uh, 1972, the United States Supreme Court, in a case called Papa Christu, uh, ab abolishes, uh, the, um, or it reverses the conviction of Lorraine Papa Christu, a, uh, a woman who'd been uh, arrested for vagrancy um, uh, in Florida, arrested for, for vagrancy essentially because she was consorting with an African-American man. Uh, the Supreme Court reverses her conviction and does so in a critically, uh, a critically important way. Rather than deciding that vagrancy laws are unconstitutional in and of themselves, 
the court in Papa Christu decided following Frankfurter from the 40s and following a line of, of thought that went through Louis Lusky in the 1950s and 60s, the court decides that the vagrancy statutes are void for vagueness, void for vagueness, and therefore can't be uh, enforced um, by, um, uh, by the courts of, uh, of, of Florida. And what, what Risa uh, reveals to us in this moment of debate in 1971, 72, 73, is the real possibility that the law might have gone the other way, that the US Supreme Court might have adopted reaching back into its substantive due process uh, uh, toolkit, might have adopted a, a broad autonomy right uh, to do the kinds of things that vagrancy law purported to prohibit, but the court did not. The court did not. It instead adopted this narrower approach using what uh, lawyers like Alex Bickle might have called the passive virtues. The passive virtues, finding uh, procedural ways of characterizing uh, vagrancy prosecutions uh, as, as void and unconstitutional without forbidding uh, the underlying uh, uh, regulations um, as a matter of substantive due process. Now, what, what Risa leaves us with then uh, is a moment in which vagrancy statutes have been essentially ruled unconstitutional, even as cases like Roe v. Wade are themselves the very next year recreating the, the, um, uh, the substantive due process doctrine and finding a new way to create a substantive due process autonomy right, uh, which the court is willing to adopt in that context, in the abortion context, where it was not willing to adopt it in the vagrancy context. Now, I'm going to reserve the rest of my remarks for, um, uh, for my, my uh, deep and incisive criticisms of the book, which will come in just a few minutes, I, I assure you. But I do want to point out one last thing about this, um, this wonderful manuscript. In the story of the decline and fall of this legal category, what, what Risa has done is describe a triumph, a, a legal triumph, the, the production of one of the core ideas that many of us take for granted as being important to what freedom means uh, in the late 20th and now in the, um, in the 21st centuries. Um, but Risa's attentive to, she's attentive to, to the limits of that triumph. This is a moment, 1972, with the Papa Christou case, in which we now know from our discourse about inequality and the attention to inequality in the United States, that at the very moment that the inequality crisis is starting to take off, we now know that this is the very moment in which the mass incarceration state is starting to get underway. We now know that there are lots of things going on for the very people who are the beneficiaries, the ostensible beneficiaries of the Papa Christou case, which aren't going to work out so well for precisely the beneficiaries. And so the, the, what the manuscript does, which really makes it, I think, one of the leading legal historical books of our time, is to pose that question squarely. What is it about the main symbols of the constitutional law triumphs of the late the second half of the 20th century, what is it about them that might be connected to some of the failings of that same constitutional vision? So I'll, I'll keep more of my remarks uh, along those lines for the, um, uh, for, for, the, for the powerful criticism period that will soon follow. So thank you. Thank you, Dean Mahoney. Thank you for inviting me here. And thanks to you, all of you for making UVA such a vibrant place to study legal history. 
In my course on the 1960s, I shamelessly crib from ACLU historian Sam Walker when I tell the, le the legend of someone I've named Rufus Van Winkle. I've named him Rufus because I don't think Rufus Peckham should be the only character in constitutional history named Rufus. My Rufus is a 20-year-old fellow from Atlanta who goes to Emory and loves to party. One night in 1952, he ties one on. He awakens in November of 1972. He is now 40 years old. As Rufus sets off downtown to find his way back to his family's house in the Tony section of Buckhead, he is amazed by the transformation of his world. He passes a panhandler. He passes a prostitute who solicits him. He passes a hippie exiting a crash pad and talking about free love. He passes someone he thinks may be a man dressed as a woman, and he passes women coming out of something called Planned Parenthood, talking about how easy it is now to get the pill, which he's never heard of. He passes a group of black, or as Rufus would have called them before he fell asleep, colored men on a street corner talking about something called the Black Panthers. He passes elementary schools and high schools that have by 1972 been largely desegregated in the urban south, and he sees black and white children playing together. Now it happens to be November 2nd, 1972, the day that Richard Nixon trounces George McGovern, whom the president has, has, has uh, derided as the candidate of acid amnesty and abortion. And Rufus passes anti-war protesters screaming, end the war, and calling ironically for acid amnesty and abortion. He passes polling places, and who does Rufus see exiting from them? African Americans. He learns later that they mobilized successfully to demand their rights to vote in the 1960s. Another site surprises Rufus just as much, that of interracial couples. As they kiss each other goodbye in front of a peach tree, Peachtree Street office building, Rufus notes that they're wearing wedding rings and realizes that they're married. In Georgia, when he fell asleep, misogynation was illegal and the couple would have been arrested. Still bewildered, he goes down a side street. And what does he see there but two guys who are clearly a couple coming out of a gay bar? They're not holding hands, it's just 1972, but they're obviously an item. Rufus has heard about men being attracted to other men, but he has never seen this behavior in public, and he wonders why this couple isn't arrested. Arrest is on Rufus's mind. He's worried that after 20 years of sleep, he looks so bad that he'll be arrested for vagrancy. At the time he fell asleep, bums, as Rufus called them, were often arrested simply for being broke in public. 
Surprisingly, the Atlanta police, who have been newly sensitized by the Supreme Court's recent declaration in Papa Christu that a Jacksonville, Florida ordinance is void for vagueness, those Atlanta policemen who've heard that pass Rufus right by. But Rufus is most bewildered by what happens when he arrives home, is reunited with his family, and they're watching the news on another surprise, color TV. Despite the Supreme Court's recent decision that a vagrancy statute is void for vagueness in Papa Christu, a poor person elsewhere in the nation has been arrested for loitering. And to Rufus's surprise, the individual is on TV complaining to the media about his treatment. This is against my rights, he says. Rufus is totally amazed for a person who's so down and out to advance so strong a claim in so legalistic a way, I've got my rights, blows him away. And in the end, as Sam Walker would say, this is what's most amazing to Rufus. It's not just that a social revolution involving race, class, and gender has taken place while he was asleep for 20 years, and that all of these previously forbidden things are now possible. It's that the common denominator is the rhetoric of and revolution in rights which caused and reflected the rewriting of the Constitution. Now, I've been telling the story of Rufus Van Winkle for a long time, but until I read Reese's wonderful book, I imagined that Rufus was worried about a vagrancy prosecution because he hadn't had a haircut for 20 years and because he didn't look as if he had visible means of support. I didn't understand that vagrancy was the flip side of the Warren Court's rights revolution and in many ways the engine behind the Warren Court's rights revolution. I didn't realize that historically just about everyone engaged in the conduct Rufus viewed with such wonder had at one time reason to worry about a vagrancy prosecution because of that conduct. Yeah, I knew Bill Stuntz had written that loitering and vagrancy statutes made practically anything anyone did in public potentially criminal. But I had no idea of how much work vagrancy did in policing the public and even private behavior. I didn't fully understand the value of vagrancy in policing society. I feel stupid that I never figured this out before. This is very much an aha book that makes sense of so many things. And there's so much I love about this book. First is the periodization. Like Risa, I believe in the long 60s, long 1960s. Her long 1960s goes from 1952 to 1972. 
My long 60s always started at Brown, but she's persuaded me to start them in 1952. Parenthetically, I wonder, though, whether 72 is the time to end the long 60s. What about an even messier long 60s that goes to, say, 1975, which would enable you to fold in the oil embargo, Watergate, the fall of Saigon, and Milliken, and Milliken against Bradley. The second aspect of the book I love is the way vagrancy runs through and ties together the disparate movements of the 60s, which are not always easily interrelated. Everyone who teaches a course on the 60s will, as I do, will appreciate this book. I mean, think about it. One day you get up and talk about the civil rights movement, another the new left, still another the counterculture, another the feminist movement, another LBJ, another the war, another Barry Goldwater and Ronald Reagan. As Risa says, echoing the historian Van Gogh's, we've come to think about the 60s as a movement of movements. And if we think of the 60s as a movement of movements, we nevertheless now have vagrancy to tie those movements together. Vagrancy, as Risa would say, unifies the 1960s without flattening the 1960s. I just wish Risa could have found a conservative political activist or an Okie from Muskogee who was arrested for loitering in, say, Berkeley or Madison. But even without that, what William O. Douglas was trying to protect in his opinion in Papa Christu, as Risa makes clear, was the spirit of the 60s and the nonconformists who felt out of place in this country. The third thing I love about this book is the way Risa adds law into the mix. Of course, I was wowed by Risa's doctrinal dexterity. And I loved, for example, her discovery of how and why substantive due process and void for vagueness traded places in Papa Christu and Roe. But beyond that, this book transforms all vagrancy law into a prism on the 60s. That's a remarkable accomplishment. There's precious little law in 60s scholarship. Until recently, it was rare to see even a mention of the war in court in works of cultural, political, and social history. It was as if those Morton Horwitz called the general historians hermetically sealed off law from social change. Yet my sense has also been that legal historians who write about legal and constitutional change during the 1960s don't fully appreciate the way the 60s shaped the behavior and law they're discussing. I mean, this is a period when the United States came closer to anarchy and revolution than at any time since the Civil War. You don't always get a sense of that from the legal and constitutional histories of the 1960s. You get a sense of that in this book. 
So I don't agree with Ken Mack's point in the Golubov mack exchange that Risa is calling for legal historians to obey Dirk Hartog's advice to marry social and legal history, and that they've already internalized that. I don't think legal historians have successfully integrated law with the 1960s, or that social and political historians have successfully integrated the 60s with law. This book does that. What's great about Reese's story is the way that a kaleidoscope of actors, way more than in the traditional Supreme Court-centered approach, come together to make constitutional change possible. For contrary to her first book, where the NAACP embarked on a careful campaign, vagrancy, Risha shows, did not fall because of a concerted campaign. And the US Supreme Court comes across in this book as even more timorous than it was in Brown versus, Brown versus Board of Education in 54 when it declared a right and delayed announcing a remedy. The court's story, Risa masterfully demonstrates, is one, the Supreme Court story, as Risa demonstrates, is one of equivocation, obfuscation, and denial until events overtook the justices, and it was clear to everyone that the vagrancy regime would fall. Then the court enters the breach with Justice Douglas's stirring swan song in Papa Christu. In fact, turning to my questions, the first question I would ask Risa is how, if at all, her story changes the way we see the court during the Warren and Berger eras. Perhaps Vagrant Nation provides support for those like Barry Friedman and Corina Lane who say that the Warren court was not counter-majoritarian, but majoritarian. And is there a difference between the Warren and Berger courts? Should we simply refer to the Supreme Court during the long 60s without putting a chief justice's name on it? In their new book, Linda Greenhouse and Michael Gretz suggest that the Berger court eroded the equality underlying the Warren court's opinions. But if anything, the Berger court seems a bit more courageous on vagrancy than the Warren court. Second, what do we make of the lawyers here? In Reese's account, constitutional change begins with social movements, but the actors in the movements need to lawyer up to make arguments. Like the history Reese calls for, vagrant nations treats lawyers as intermediaries and as gatekeepers between lay actors and courts. That's great. But some of Reese's lawyers seem to want to lose the case so that they can get to the US Supreme Court. Is Reese broadening her critique of the Brown lawyers in The Lost Promise of Civil Rights to extend to the lawyers about whom she writes here? Is the behavior of the lawyers in Vagrant Nation always correct or ethical? I think of Abe Fortas insisting that he represented Clarence Gideon, 
not the cause of right to counsel, and that he sent for a transcript of Gideon's trial to figure out whether the lower court had overlooked special circumstances that would justify the appointment of, of counsel under Betts versus Brady. If Gideon was incompetent, for example, Fortas said, it was my duty so to advise the court and to argue that his conviction should be overturned on, on the special circumstances doctrine without the necessity of reconsidering the basic holding in Betts versus Brady. It would have been my duty to do this, even though it would have made the case meaningless, even though it would have been frustrating to the Supreme Court, and even though it would have meant that I was handling a routine criminal case. Leave aside whether such a result would have been meaningless for Gideon. Some of the lawyers in vagrant nations seem to care inappropriately, I would suggest, for cause over client. I was shocked to find one of them, shocked, uh, to find one of them, Sam Jacobson, telling Risa in an interview that I didn't write a very strong brief for the appellate court in Papakristu. Plus, there were earlier cases upholding the Florida law, which I knew. So I really kind of invited affirmance. He then decided to bypass the Florida Supreme Court to take the case directly to the US Supreme Court. He was afraid the Florida court would invalidate the law or reverse the convictions, Risa observes. And as he put it to Risa, my eye was on Washington. Now, it's refreshing to hear a lawyer talk about his choices so candidly. But the rap against the cause lawyers of the 60s from establishment members like Fortas was that they represented causes rather than clients. Was Jacobson's behavior appropriate? Could we use Vagrant Nation to construct an indictment of 60s cause lawyers and maybe of public interest lawyers in other eras as well? Finally, as Reese's epilogue asks, what difference does the story she tells so beautifully here make to Rufus? Assuming he doesn't learn from his mistakes, ties one on again, and sinks into another deep sleep. One question is how many localities complied with Papa Christou? Think of the many schools that defiantly continued to open the, uh, the day with a prayer or Bible reading after Shemp. Was there a similar pattern at play here with some localities remaining unaffected by Papa Christou? And or when Rufus wakes up after that second big sleep and makes his way home, will he find that the same behaviors that once might have been prosecuted as vagrancy would now be punished as with more targeted ordinances, anti-panhandling, anti-gang ordinances, anti-prostitution ordinances, etc. I understand that vagrancy statutes did a lot of work in the 60s and before, and that it was a really big deal to get them declared void for vagueness. 
But if localities responded by enacting more specific laws, criminalizing the same kind of behavior that the old vagrancy statutes attacked, and by perpetuating the regime of marginalization for people out of place that vagrancy laws perpetuated pre-Papa Christu, what difference does Reese's story make to the Rufuses of the world? However we answer these questions, there can be no denying that this magnificent and moving and optimistic book will provide a template for how to write legal history for years to come. Thank you. So I want to start by saying a special word of thanks to Cynthia Nicoletti for all of the work that she did in, in creating this panel and, and putting it together. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm also really delighted that you invited me to be a part of it. It's a great joy and an honor to participate in this important conversation, and I know that each of the panelists feels exactly that way. Um, but I have a special reason for being thankful to Cynthia. It turns out that the legwork that she did in getting ready for the conference um, had the happy effect of producing a little text that helps to give me a framework for my remarks. And I'm overjoyed to be able to share this little textual gift with Risa and with all of you. Um, so when Cynthia was in the planning stages, she spoke with Tony Amsterdam, and she invited him to come and to be a part of this celebration of Reese's book. Alas, he said, he could not come in person. At his age, he never even tries to travel anymore in the winter. So what he did instead was to write a note for Risa so that he could be here in spirit, and he asked Cynthia to find a way to share his note with Risa and with this audience. So Tony left it to Cynthia to come up with the appropriate method of transition, and she's such a generous colleague that she, rather than reading it herself uh, and taking the credit which she deserves, um, she gave me the privilege. So I, I want to thank her as I now read what Tony has to say. Um, and in Tony's way, it is short and pithy, and Cynthia and I both agreed less is more. So Tony Amsterdam. Dear Risa, as the celebration marking the publication of your vagrant nation approaches, I want to join in congratulating you and to say what a superb piece of work you have wrought. It's a wonderful book, profoundly instructive not only for those to whom the story you've written will be unfamiliar, but to those as well who lived parts of it and who understood less deeply what was going on than you have now made us aware. Thank you for spreading on this landscape that richly, illuminating, that richly illuminating light of a westering sun, which, to borrow Edith Wharton's metaphor, gives genuine meaning to narrative and history alike. With admiration and appreciation, Tony. So I like to think that these words give me a framework for my comments. Um, I'm not exactly in the same position as Tony Amsterdam with respect to Reese's work. Um, as you can probably tell, I'm the one on this panel who's not like the others. I'm not an historian uh, uh, by no means. 
So it would be preposterous for me to claim to be in the same position as Tony or the historians on the panel. But I do see an analogy in my relation to the work. Um, as most of you know, uh, Reese's work is about territory with which I am not unfamiliar. Um, unlike Tony, I didn't live parts of it. It's true I was alive during the long 1960s, but as far as I can recall, I then lacked any consciousness of the significant role that vagrancy laws and its challenges played at the time, and also that they would come to play in my own professional life. Um, the point is that I teach parts of this terrain. I've been teaching parts of it since I entered the legal academy, um, particularly substantive criminal law and constitutional criminal procedure. And for me, the book is profoundly instructive, really transformative by making me aware of what was going on, um, of how thin my legal narratives have been um, over time. I almost feel the need to apologize to past students for the thinness of my understanding, but you hadn't written the book. Um, the myriad connections among the fields in which I research and teach and also the open textured nature of the law at that time, the arguments that were available to the parties then, that the cases I teach seem to close down, and that might in fact take on a life in the future. Um, and so the book inspires me in that way as well. So what I'm gonna do is to offer just a few brief reflections on the ways the, in which the book has transformed really utterly the way I think and teach about portions of substantive criminal law and the Supreme Court's role in managing that domain. Um, and then the way I'm thinking about the deep and explicit connections between substantive criminal law definitions and constitutional criminal investigation. Um, and then yes, uh, I am a law and humanities person, so I do plan to say a few things about legal narratives, specifically those that are produced in the context of criminal cases and the pressure that criminal cases can put on the shape of the narrative. Um, and then I also hope that we all can reflect about Reese's way of deploying narratives in her history and what she has to teach us about the ways in which we construct the narratives according to which we might live our own professional lives. So, I think what I'm going to do, just to give you a sense of the transformative power of, of Reese's book, and this transformative power is going to be uh, uh, something I think that affects the entire field of criminal law and constitutional criminal law. Um, I'm going to talk first a little bit about Papa Christu and the way I thought about Papa Christu at the time I was first teaching it and the way I think about it now and then move to, to Terry versus Ohio and, 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 and that case. Um, so Papa Christou, as you know, if, even if you've not read Reese's book, I'm sure you know that Papa Christou is the great Supreme Court case that invalidates um, these vagrancy statutes. And the ground that the court relies on is that the statutes are so vague that people in the world can't understand what they mean, can't order their affairs so as to avoid criminal punishment, and also that the statutes give police a very broad net for picking and choosing um, who it is that they want to arrest. And the case has always been a great deal of fun to teach, and I, but I now feel like I've, I've taken che cheap shots at the case, or I've enjoyed it in ways that, that, that have been insufficiently uh, attentive to, to my need to educate students about th this important law. 
So one of the reasons why the case is fun to teach and easy to take cheap shots is the medieval language of the statute. I mean, it's just this enchanting statute that punishes vagrancy in all of its forms, but particularly including things that look just absurd to contemporary eyes, especially our students. It punishes jugglers, people who play games. It punishes common uh, drunkards. It punishes men who live on the earnings of women. You know, we always get a big laugh out of that. And so it's just a lot of fun to, to sort of focus on this really crazy statute and the fact that it's still on the books at that time and that the state is happily enforcing it. And then it also is, again, interesting to spend time thinking about the medieval ways of thinking that generated um, um, this, this law, to think about the dangers presented by night walkers, not to mention jugglers and so forth. So in any event, that, that is uh, uh, a useful uh, and fun thing to do. And then the other thing, of course, and Laura has already alluded to this in her comments, is that in the case itself, you can tell that the police or, or one worries that the police were motivated uh, to make these arrests in part because they confronted an interracial couple or an interracial group. So there's the feeling that they were using the vagrancy statute not for any um, plausible criminal purpose, but for, for biased reasons of their own. And so those are things that are important and and obviously very useful. And then let me be clear, we do use the case to teach students about some important um, um, features of contemporary criminal law, the idea that you need conduct, the idea that you need mental state, the idea that we don't punish people um, for, for status, uh, crimes, and, and so on and so forth. So we, we do use the case for, for, for all of those great reasons. Um, but there have been times when I've wondered whether I should be teaching something else. I'm suggesting to my students that there are going to be a lot of void for vagueness challenges. And every year I find it necessary to tell students you may never have the opportunity to encounter a vague statute. This in practice does not arise very frequently. Um, and, and, and that's true. I guess one of the questions is whether it should be true. So what, what Reese's treatment of Papa Christo has done for me is to make me understand the myriad contexts in which the vagrancy laws were used. I had only been thinking about it in the cases involving interracial couples, and she's opened up that field of vision for me and made me understand the very profound work that it did. The other thing that the book does, and it's a very humanizing experience, is that it really goes so far beyond the stylized narrative in the case that you now understand the profound impact on the lives of the human beings who are caught up in the vagrancy net. And yes, I could regale you with the stories, but I don't have time. You really have to read the book. It's incredibly uh, moving. So, you know, you no longer can just sort of trivialize, oh, this is antiquated law, and once in a while someone enforced it, and you, know, you see the, the, the profound work that it did. But the other thing that the book has done for me as a contemporary teacher of substantive criminal law and criminal investigation, and since I've known about this, these chapters for a while, they've already changed the way I approach the case, is to make the students focus on the parts of the statute that were actually doing the work in the case, Right? Forget about the juggler part, that's fun, but that's not doing the work in the case. What are the provisions that are actually doing the work in the case? And then to be mindful of the ways in which we might want to give the police the authority to intervene in some form in that 
uh, conduct or in that event. And that's something that I just simply didn't do before. I thought bad police, um, good vagrants, and this is vague, right? So, so it really made me focus on, and this is something I, we've known in more, uh, not just an abstract sense, have to think about the connection between substance and procedure, really push ourselves to think hard about the good things that can come from giving police some kind of discretion. So, so that also has been transformative. And then, of course, the other really important point for me has been the flip. The, that the, the notion that at some point the Supreme Court seemed poised to rule on substantive due process grounds. And again, when I read uh, Papa Christu, I read it in a very passive way previously. It's inevitable. This was the, it was going to be void for vagueness. And then you worry about the extent to which void for vagueness does very much work. Well, suddenly you realize that, in fact, it could have gone off on substantive due process grounds. What would that opinion look like? And then, of course, to try to imagine the day will come that the court might, in fact, reinvigorate a substantive due process in that precise context. So now, thank you, Peter Lowe, for putting it back in the book. Peter Lowe, uh, th this is a perennial case in case books, and Peter insisted on keeping Papa Christou instead of one of the more modern cases. On, on vagueness, I now totally get it. it Papa Christou is not just the, the granddaddy case, it's the case to teach. Um, so, so that's been a, a, a very great gift and, and transformative of my teaching. Whether that makes a difference in the world, I don't know, it, I care about it. Um, so the, the other thing that I wanna say, just briefly, and Laura of course alluded to Bill Stunts and his great work about the connections between substance and procedure, about the ways in which vague laws actually enable the police to arrest whoever they want, and this is a bad thing, um, to be thinking about uh, whether we want to regulate the police through very clear substantive laws, whether we can do that, how the Fourth Amendment definition should interact, and so forth. Um, so, I, I, yeah, I've been having those thoughts. I was a good friend of Bill's. Um, but just to give you a, a little sense, again, about the transformative power for, uh, of the work and the way in which it has tremendous relevance for the work we're doing today. I, I realize that this may be anathema when you're speaking to historians. They don't necessarily want their work to have a payoff or, or they don't need to defend their work as having a payoff for contemporary questions. But, but this book, it does that, maybe because we're still in the long 1960s. Um, but what I did was, and I, I was going to show this to Risa yesterday, but I was afraid she, well, I, didn't, I wanted to show it today. So this is the outline that I used to use to teach Terry Ver versus Ohio. And, and you can see it's written in, in, on pieces of paper, you know, wasn't using, this is very long ago. But this is a narrative that was extant at the time that I first started teaching criminal procedure and it was the narrative that most of us told, and it was a narrative that came from Bill Stunts. And, oh, you know Terry versus Ohio, right? I'm sorry, I only have a couple of more minutes, but Terry versus Ohio is, again, the great case in which the Supreme Court recognizes that the police do commit Fourth Amendment searches and seizures when they stop and frisk, but the court decides they're entitled to do that on less than full-blown probable cause. So it creates this sort of intermediate police activity and the question at the time in Terry was, would the court regulate stop and frisk fully under a full-blown probable cause standard? What, what, what would it do? Um, so in any event, when you're teaching the case, you tell, well, 
what we, what we told our students back in the day is there's a political run-up to Terry and then there's a legal run-up to Terry, right? And the political run-up was we had a civil rights movement going on, which clearly was making the court very concerned about the potential for racism in policing, right? They're really worried about this. At the same time, the civil rights movement, of course, is creating a lot of violence on the streets, and that's giving law-abiding people and, and, and law enforcement concern about the, 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 the violence that's going on. Um, and then also there's a spike in crime rates, a spike in actual crime, so there's a lot of you know, tension swirling around. And then the story we tell on the legal side is that Terry's a blockbuster because it's the case that sort of opened the floodgates, if you will, to Supreme Court intervention and oversight of, of, of criminal investigation. And so what we tell them is prior to the MAP case, there's no enforcement of search and seizure law. There's no exclusionary remedy applied to the state, so we don't, we don't enforce the Fourth Amendment very often pre-MAP. Um, so then the court decides MAP, right? And then vagrancy laws are tossed. Vagrancy laws are invalidated. And so the police no longer have an excuse automatically in every case to justify, I'm arresting this person because he or she is a vagrant. Suddenly, they can't fall back on the vagrancy arrest, and they've got to come up with some justification for why it is that they are doing, intervening with this person. And so the idea is that suddenly the court is required for the very first time to consider the things that are taking place on the street through the rubric of the Fourth Amendment. And what Reese's book tells us is that that narrative is fundamentally wrong, that the court was actively thinking about the question of whether it should regulate the police through, or, or, or whether it should limit police discretion by taking away the vagrancy laws and by perhaps denying them the Terry power. What were the options? Do you want to give the police uh, discretion under vagrancy? Do you want to give them discretion under the Fourth Amendment? Do you want to give them neither? Do you want to give them both? And this has, again, completely disrupted the way in which I've been thinking about teaching the material and, of course, then opens up all of these contemporary questions. What should we be doing today? Is it time to cut back on the Terry power? Did the court make a mistake in authorizing the police to exercise their discretion based on a reasonable suspicion as opposed to a full-blown probable cause, even if it's only for a vagrancy arrest? The last thing that I want to say is Reese's book um, reminds us to be mindful of the narratives that we bring to the courts and the context in which they're produced. So, at least in the context of substantive criminal law, there is going to be some effort to construct a narrative about why this person is a criminal, um, about why they deserve to be deemed a criminal. And of course, in the vagrancy area, that became increasingly difficult, if not impossible, for the state to do. Because a lot of the cases, many of the cases, as Risa shows, involved people who were just like us. They were poor, they were down on their luck, they were African Americans hanging around with white people, they were gay, um, they, were, they had long hair, they were men with long hair, women with short hair. You know, so so in, in, in the context of the substantive creation, the narrative in the substantive case, you, you suddenly come away realizing this is a very unjust thing that the police are doing. Um, the problem in the context of 
the stop and frisk power, which we really need to scrutinize very closely, is that the litigation never involves innocent people, or, or so it seems, because the primary vehicle is the suppression motion, right? We end up with a narrative where we know before the fact that the person is guilty, right? We know before the fact that the police already have the goods on the, this person. And so it's very difficult for us to see the, I mean, my sense is we should care about the impact of these practices on the guilty people, but by definition in the Terry context, most of those folks are as innocent as the vagrants. That's all I can say about that. But we don't see any of those folks. They're invisible to us. They don't erupt into the cases because they have nothing to suppress. The police let them go. So one question is how to begin to bring those stories to light. And Reese's book does that for us in a history. I'm not sure how we do it in a, in a litigation. The last thing I'll say, and this picks up on, on Laura's point about cause lawyering um, versus client-based lawyering, is that one of the things that I like is the way the, the, the narratives in the book have the, the, both a leveling down and then a, a, a leveling up. So we see how people who presumably are on the margins, the shuffling Joes, um, and, and so forth, suddenly become the center of the story. And the leveling down of some of the great lawyers, you see some of their quirks and their uh, uh, idiosyncratic ways of thinking and talking to each other. And one of the things that I think that's most moving as a takeaway for our students who want to litigate in the public interest, wherever that might, might be, is to realize the open textured nature of the law and for them to play the long game and for them to be mindful of creating narratives about their own place in this work. You know, maybe you're not Tony Amsterdam, certainly not many of us can claim that, but all of these lawyers in these different places and their clients together were creating law that ultimately changed the dialogue and gave us a new set of questions to, to answer. Thank you. So having, having taken so much of your time already, I won't, I won't take much longer, but I did want to get a chance to get my editorial comments uh, uh, in. Um, I, I think um, you know, what, what we should all want from a, from a book, I mean, from any, like any book, like what you should want from a book <laughs> uh, is that in some way it help you get at, see just a little bit more brightly than you'd seen before, something about the deep wellsprings of human motivation or something about uh, the sources uh, of, of how human beings act and come to understand ideals and hold ideals. Uh, and it's, it's, it's the successes of this book on those scores that to me make it um, really a wonderful uh, piece of work. Which of course is not to say that the book actually allows us to see the sources or wellsprings of history or the construction of human ideals because of course we're not going to see those things as brightly as we'd like. We're just going to get partial views here and there. And so it's the, I think it's high praise uh, when I say that this gives us some partial views that we didn't have before. And so what I thought I'd say over the next couple minutes, just really just a, a couple, um, is a few things about the 
way in which we can see the sources, uh, the wellsprings of history working uh, in, this, uh, in this book, and also some of the ways in which we can see the limits of the law, and I think necessarily, actually, some of the limits of the book, because the, the, the book takes the law as its central source, as its central topic, uh, and so the book is embedded in some of the kinds of limits that the law has uh, in trying to help us understand um, uh, questions about where history comes from and what our ideals consist of and where they come from and what they, and what they mean. So, um, so two topics then, uh, the sources of, of the end of vagrancy, where does it come from, and then what, what are the effects of this new ideal this new ideal of freedom that gets organized around the fight uh, against the vagrancy statutes. So, you know, where does, what's the answer to this puzzle that I posed at the outset? You know, where does the decline and fall of vagrancy come from? I, I, don't, I don't really know, but we could, we could list, we could together uh, brainstorm to create a list of possible factors, and they would include some things that Risa mentions along the way in the book. The rise of the welfare state and the idea that poverty might not be connected to the fault of the poor individual. That, that would be an important piece of the intellectual, conceptual apparatus that would allow you to, to intervene in and undo a vagrancy regime. But it wouldn't be the only piece. You could imagine the flip side, too. That is, you could imagine a libertarian pro-market view, which would take uh, a, a view that people shouldn't be put in prison or punished uh, for hanging out because people should be allowed to do whatever they want to do. They don't have any claim on anyone else but they should be able to do whatever it is they want to do. So here's an interesting puzzle. Already at the outset, we just listed two possible sources, intellectual sources, but they're in some sense polar opposites in 20th century political economy. They are the welfare state and its critics, both converging on a set of ideas that might delegitimate this, um, this vagrancy, uh, this vagrancy uh, uh, regime. And I think the puzzle gets even deeper if we started to list other factors. And I think we might want to include any number of things um, uh, like the, um, well, I think the rise of the automobile, I'm going to choose like a sort of far out one that borrows from Sarah Seo, who I think is one of your fellows here this, this year. But the rise of the automobile, what does the rise of the automobile does, do? Well, it empties out the urban centers, right? It means that the urban centers aren't as critical to the daily life of Americans as they used to be because you can go wherever you want now. You don't have to just follow the train line into the middle. And that means that homelessness in the city is not going to affect the lives of people who can flee to the suburbs. And this is, of course, exactly the moment where we're starting to see that great transition. We're starting to see cities in decline beginning in the early 1970s. We're starting to see white flight to the suburbs. And so actually, in some ways, vagrancy might not be as important in the regulation of communities after this basic social transition in the way upper middle class people live. Um, uh, so, so there's another possibility in explaining how this could uh, uh, could come about. But we could list, you know, any number of um, of further of further considerations, including ones that get closer to where Risa is. Um, we see here in the in the extended 60s, the long 60s, you know, any number of efforts to transform local social life by the federal government. This might be the rise of the First Amendment, which we haven't talked about here today, but Reese's book is brilliant on. There is no First Amendment until the 20th century, for all intents and purposes, in the courts of the United States. As a, as a judicial matter, there's no First Amendment. Um, uh, it is a 20th century project to uh, guarantee free speech as against local and state regulation. Incorporation of the First Amendment doesn't happen until the 1920s. Um, and if you want to enforce that, 
as against local officials, it's going to be really hard to do that if they can arrest anyone for vagrancy. Because you're not going to be able to police against um, uh, strategic uses of vagrancy statutes by local officials. And the same with the civil rights movement. This is why civil rights leaders get caught up in vagrancy prosecutions, is that the effort to establish civil rights norms runs into the vast discretion of local officials to cover civil rights arrests, arrests on the grounds of race and, and, and racial regulation regimes under the form of vagrancy. So all these are reasons of why the uh, vagrancy regime comes under assault uh, in the latter part of the 20th century. The piece that I think shows the, the limits of the law here is that many of these features don't come from the cases. They don't come from the law. They are intellectual projects about the welfare state or about uh, the limits of the welfare state. They're ideas about poverty. They are uh, massive social transformations like the rise of the automobile and the transformation of the city. And insofar as those are the things that are driving the, the move to abolish uh, the vagrancy statutes, well then the law can't really get at all those things. And in some sense, some of these pieces come as if from off stage in any story about the law. Necessarily, they come as if from, uh, from off stage. I should say that one reason to think that there are things going on off stage is precisely to pick up something that Laura really usefully uh, pointed out. It seems like every social project in the extended 1960s produces miraculously the vagrancy problem. It, it converges. All roads lead to vagrancy, it seems, uh, uh, in this period. So one wonders, you know, what else is going on? There must be some other thing. Um, and so I guess if I were putting questions to Reese, you know, one of the questions would be, how can we get at those other things through the law, or, or do we just have to leave them uh, aside? But I want to end on um, uh, some of the ways in which the law is extremely useful in understanding the effects of the construction of this new ideal, this new ideal of freedom, which is, I think, being reorganized during the long 60s around a certain notion of autonomy that the vagrancy statutes uh, um, uh, infringe upon and, uh, and violate. What are the effects? And in some ways, these effects are not altogether happy, um, and yet they're still constructed by the law, and Reese's account helps us understand it. So I just uh, three really quick schematic uh, um, uh, uh, categories of effects. One is, let's think about poverty policy in the United States. This is one of the things that, that the vagrancy statutes were about, is, is the, the punishment and regulation of idle poverty. Um, uh, and Reese has got a chapter that's really principally uh, about that. Well, the early 1970s is an interesting moment for poverty policy in the United States. It's still plausible in the early 1970s that we're going to get something like a guaranteed minimum income. I mean, there are serious constitutional questions being mooted about, about whether every person is entitled to a guaranteed constitutional minimum income, uh, pre presumably provided by the federal government. Um, but at the same time, the early 70s are precisely the moment where the, the, the most robust forms of full employment, post-World War II Keynesian political economy are beginning to run, to, to run ashore um, uh, and to lose their momentum. And we're starting to see the rise of a very different political economy that will not have a place in it for the kinds of full employment politics that we might have heard of in the latter part of the 1940s. So we think about the effects of a case like Papa Christi, the effects of the decline and fall of the, of the vagrancy category. Well, in the poverty area, I don't quite know. I, mean, I see here, I guess the, the thought is, you might be seeing the legitimation of the retreat from, of the state from really tackling seriously the problem of poverty. 
That is to say, well, you can be poor. We're, gonna, we're sure you're going to be poor because we've retreated from the policies that might have prevented that. But you won't be arrested. You won't be arrested for that. And there's a legitimation there, um, which actually cuts in some ways, interestingly, against the ways in which the welfare state was, was uh, eliminating the idea of blame in poverty. Here we have a legitimation of, of the poverty that's going to be allowed to persist once we retreat from a serious effort uh, to engage in full employment politics. A second, uh, crime and policing. So here I'm going I'm to channel Bill Stunts, as Anne has done. Um, uh, Bill was here for, for many years. I think it's still, still associated with this law school, and, 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 and rightly so. And there's a, there's a, a Stuntsian story about the effects of this here, which would go in, in, in Bill's classic hydraulic method, which would be, uh, once upon a time, local crime control was done through vagrancy. The Supreme Court made it impossible, or at least really difficult, to do it that way. And so local officials found other ways to do the same thing. They found other ways to do the same thing because the US Supreme Court was only a partial regulator of the policy problem it was attacking. Um, it came in and it could eliminate vagrancy, but it couldn't do anything about what state legislatures said the length of sentences should be. It couldn't do anything about what state legislatures and local uh, uh, officials counted as substantive crimes, as long as the substantive crime was sufficiently spelled out. And so we, we get, starting in the early 1970s, the rise of a mass incarceration state. Uh, we get much longer sentences. And we get people like shuffling Sam Thompson spending time in jail, just as they had before, but probably now. In, I mean, he's not coming out as often. He's not coming out as often in the new regime as he was before. He's going back and forth in ways that are truly terrible. Uh, under the regime of vagrancy. But the modern sentencing regimes that get put in place starting at the end of the 1960s and early 70s are ones that are going to put him away for a long time. And in the era of, well, in the era of the supermax, there's something quaint about a vagrancy regime, a vagrancy regime that, that has a kind of old-fashioned form of power uh, as compared to the truly terrifying forms of, of power that the criminal justice system is about to develop. At, at the moment of, um, of Papa Christou. Um, and then last, um, thinking about um, race and policing. So this, of course, is the thing that everyone's been talking about for a year now, race and policing. Reese's book is about a regime of race and policing in significant part and about its decline and fall. So striking then that the same problems have reemerged in new forms. Um, and so one might be tempted to think, what is the abolition essentially, a vagrancy managed to accomplish if the same problems reappear. And so here's where I want to suggest we can see, this is one of the places where Reese's book allows us to see a little bit closer to the bottom of the well, I think. But it's here, I think what we see is that the, that the Papa Christou case and the sequence that gets us there actually is constitutive of the way in which our contemporary policing and race problems uh, proceed. That is to say, after Papa Christou, the police have to articulate they have to articulate specific grounds for an arrest, for a, a, a prosecution, and those specific grounds then can become the target of challenges by those who'd like to contest the, um, uh, the arrest or the uh, conviction or whatever it is that, that, that the particular instance uh, arises out of. And, and what we see there is that the law has constructed the law that Risa tells us about, rising, uh, finishing out in, in Papa Christu, has constructed the very landscape in which the contemporary criminal policing and race controversies are happening. We really couldn't have them the way we're having them now 
if it weren't for the kinds of things uh, that Reese's story tells us. So there, there's um, some thoughts about the limits of the law in explaining how the category collapses, but then some stories I think that are about the way the power of the law to construct the landscape uh, for, for its future. Uh, and of course that's the future that we're living in now. So really a wonderful book because it allows us to see it allows us to see some pretty deep, deep things, I think, and I, I'm glad to, have, uh, glad to have been a part of it. Okay, so now I'm going to give Risa a chance to respond, and then we'll have some general discussion. There's a lot to respond to, but I'm... I'm going to be brief, I hope. Um, the first thing I want to say is thank you to all of you for coming. This is such an honor and a pleasure. Uh, thank you to Cynthia for organizing this and to Dean Mahoney for uh, uh, doing the introductions and Ted for moderating and for all of you for your just wonderful, wonderful comments. Um, uh, they're wonderful because they really get at all the things that still trouble me about the book. Uh, I mean, the flattery's nice too. But, uh, but what, re what really is, is great is that these are all questions that I wrestled with as I wrote, and uh, some of which I think I resolved better than others, uh, but they're still questions that remain in my mind. So I'm just going to say a couple of things uh, about some of them. Uh, briefly. So the first, this is a specific one that Laura raised, is the Warren Court, Burger Court distinction. And I don't say a lot about it in the book. I, I say a little bit, but one of the things that occurs to me, um, I, I don't think, and my answer often is, right, there's not a simple dichotomy. The Warren Court wasn't liberal and the Burger Court conservative or the other way around. But one of the things that I think made the Warren Court so skittish about uh, dismantling the vagrancy law regime and, and Anne talked about this in her comments, was the fear of taking away authority from the police, especially by the Warren court, who had already taken away a lot of authority from the police and was being blamed for that, was being blamed for riots, was being blamed for the rise in crime. And it was really hard for them, I think, to see their way through. And in fact, what they do in 1968, they have before them, can we license, as, as Anne said, they have all these options. And what they choose is they license the procedural power in Terry and and they retain the vagrancy power. They have two vagrancy cases that term. And they, in both of them, allow the police to continue using vagrancy laws. Uh, and so they gulp. They're scared. They don't want to be the ones who do that. And I actually think that because the Burger Court is the Nixon court, it's the more conservative court, it's becoming the law and order court, they actually have the space political space, right, to, to do that. And also, the Warren Court has given them the doctrinal space to do that by creating Terry. And the justices say to themselves in 1972 in their deliberations, Justice Blackmun in particular, well, I guess because we have Terry now, this is okay. We can take this away. Uh, and so, so I think about the relationship that way, that the Warren Court actually gives the Burger Court both the legal and doctrinal space to act. Um, second, uh, uh, I will say something about the the lawyers and uh, and the ethical questions. I was in Israel recently, and I gave my standard book talk to the faculty. And the head of the clinic said, "I need you to come give that talk to my clinics because this raises all the ethical issues about cause lawyering and public interest lawyering." And uh, and it was something that I thought about all the way through. And uh, my former colleague Tamiko Brown Nagan, when she read it, this is something she thinks about a lot. She said, "You have to talk about." 
about this more. Uh, and I ultimately do, although I don't really come down hard in any one place. But as you were talking, I had a real epiphany, uh, which is something given I've been working on this book for eight years. Uh, but um, the, and the epiphany was the following. I got a uh, fortune cookie from a Chinese restaurant while I was writing the book that said the four uh, key premises of good writing, clarity, brevity, simplicity, and humanity. The book is long. I'm not big on brevity, right? Uh, and I actually don't think that simplicity is always good. I, I think some things are complex. But clarity was really important to me. And humanity was even more important to me. And I, I put that up on my computer, and that remained there for the rest of the writing of this book. But when I thought about humanity, I thought about the humanity of Shuffling Sam Thompson, and I thought about the humanity of Lorraine Papacristou, and I thought about the kinds of things Anne was talking about narratively, making people real who aren't real in the stories that we tell in the law, and making sure to dignify them with their humanity. But what you pointed out to me was that the lawyers have humanity too. And I knew they had, I, I was interested in their biographies. I was interested in who they were and what they were doing. But humanity can go the other way. We're all human, right? And we have foibles and we, we make mistakes. Uh, and, and one place, and, and we have ambition, right? And one place where I think that Ken Mack and I agree is that lawyers are fueled not only by the creation of legal doctrine, but by larger causes and personal ambition and business models and part of this story is, is only possible because of the modern NAACP and the modern ACLU and the creation of lawyers who are available to people like the ones uh, in this book but it's complex to be a lawyer too and it's human to be a lawyer too and I I hadn't I had because I am a lawyer I am a teacher of lawyers I think we all assume the humanity of the lawyers and I hadn't thought about their humanity in that in that way so uh, so I appreciate that a lot um, uh, I have two more things to say and then I'll be done uh, the the next one is about uh, the question of, of how things change and whether the law makes them change and this question of the law being constitutive, uh, which is a, a question legal historians like to ask a lot, right? Is the law in service of some social activities and goals, or is the law producing them? And I think John and I would both agree it's always a little bit of both. And um, and one of the things that that I would respond to John, and he he might not agree with me, but, uh, but I hope that I don't come across in this book as saying that the downfall of this law is entirely legally caused, right? I do think uh, that the kinds of um, large-scale demographic, political, technological changes that John is talking about come across here. They're not the specific ones that you cite to, uh, uh, and, and those are fair, and, and I wish they were here, and when you read the book at the end, I wanted to add more of them, uh, and, I, and I added them to some extent, but, uh, but I do think that when people ask me causation questions, my answer is that complexity, right? The causation, and, and, uh, and, and Laura pointed this in her remarks too, right? Causation comes from so many different places, and it comes in part from within the law, it comes in part from outside the law. And I think it does, you know, what becomes visible is in part what sources you look at and, uh, and, and what is visible to the people at the time. Uh, and, and, and so uh, I do hope that the book doesn't convey the idea that I think that all law, although law is my subject and that constrains me in lots of ways, law is not the cause and the result of my subject, uh, but it's some part of both of those, of both of those things. And then last... 
I'll say something about what difference it makes uh, in the payoff. And, uh, and the, all three panelists ask questions about that in various ways. And they're the questions that I have found the hardest uh, throughout this process. And in part, that's because uh, I, I am ambivalent about them. Uh, I am an optimistic person at heart, uh, but I am critical intellectually, and those two things conflict here. I think it's also uh, a hard question, and my ambivalence also comes from my position in, at this moment in this literature. So my first book was called The Lost Promise of Civil Rights. There's no question on my ambivalence there, right? It was a critique of Brown. Uh, it was the lost promise of Brown, and this book is much more optimistic, and in part, that's because the optimistic story about Brown had been written. Now, I'm not saying I wrote the other one because the other one had been written, but once people said, look, this big thing happened, and then the question is, what does that big thing mean, and what difference does it make in the world, you can then analyze it and criticize it. And the, f the first task of my book was to say, a big thing happened. And it's very hard to say a big thing happened, but it doesn't matter. Now, if you think it doesn't matter, it's a totally different book. But I actually think it matters. I don't think it matters in every way. I don't think it matters for every person. And I think all the ways in which the panelists have suggested it might not matter are true. But that doesn't take away the fact that at heart, I think it really does matter. Uh, and when I started this project, um, I, I knew only about the race and the poverty portions of vagrancy laws coercion. And part of why it took me eight years to write this book was because of how much more I learned about what this regime did. It was everywhere. It was ubiquitous. It was in every 50 state, in all the 50 states, and police departments used it all the time. Millions of people are arrested under these laws, and then they go away. Uh, and people are arrested for walking down the street, and police officers don't have to say anything. When the hippies show up, they arrest the hippies. When the Vietnam War protesters show up, they arrest the, the Vietnam. They don't have to pass a new law. They don't have to have a policy change. They just start arresting new people, and no one knows. And part of that is about procedural issues as well, uh, and changes in procedure that happen in this period too. Um, and so I actually think the fact that you have new laws that get passed that require legislatures to identify targeted conduct and particular individuals who engage in that conduct uh, and have to justify to the rights-conscious person and have to justify to a judge in a real trial uh, why it is they've arrested that person uh, who is now represented by a lawyer, I think that's a real change. Um, but what, what I still feel ambivalent about is, you know, all, all the things that have been said. It's not everything. It's, it's both revolutionary and really minimal, the right to walk down the street without being arrested for a crime that required you to do nothing in order to commit it. Uh, that's both everything and nothing. And, and, and that has been an enduring ambivalence that, uh, that exists in the book and, and that I do think um, provokes questions uh, going forward. And the, the last thing I'll say is that when I started this book eight years ago, I actually think we were in a different time in terms of what people think about criminal justice. And we were squarely in the mass incarceration state. It didn't look possible for the decriminalization of marijuana. It didn't look possible for the early release of uh, nonviolent offenders. Uh, it didn't look possible that you'd have a massive uh, litigation campaign in New York City that led to the suspension of stop and frisk altogether. Uh, and, and, and so one of the things that I hope the book shows is not once things were bad and then they're good, but 
things are bad and good in lots of different ways. And as we move forward in time, things might seem cyclical, but they're always changing. And the, and the, the perspective at which we look at this moment in time changes based on our current perspective. And one of the things that I hope is true about the book, and this is something that John said, is it is constitutive of our present, and I think it will continue to be for a long time. So even as our present uh, uh, point of view uh, and perspective changes, I hope that it continues to speak to whatever the present uh, becomes. So thank you all for coming, and I look forward, and we all look forward to your questions, and just I'm just so honored. I, I, there's nothing else to say. I, I, I'm just honored. Thank you. So I thought I'd just stand up here and recognize various people. And, and uh, we're going to end no later than 6 o'clock. We may end earlier. There's a, a reception afterwards. So. Uh, I invite your questions, and I thought I'd start with one for Risa. Um, th there's a lot of, uh, I, I read this book in, in various stages, and I read the most recent version. Um, there's a lot of surprises in the book. There were a lot of surprises for me. And there are also a lot of surprises in the differences between the drafts. Um, and what particularly surprised me was something that I had known about in and many of us who worked with internal court papers know about, but I think is not very well known to the general public. And that is how when you get certain cases that are perceived of as difficult in some inchoate fashion by the justices and by litigants, and, and the idea of how you go about attacking vagrancy laws was, was an illustration. Um, it, it may not be generally known that the justices themselves are struggling with these matters. And if you look at the internal court papers, they reflect a lot of fluidity in the choice of doctrine. And Risa does a very good job of demonstrating in, in Papa Christu how there's alternative ways in which the case could have been conceptualized and resolved. And we've already talked about how it turns out that Roe is the case where substantive due process is revived and Papa Christu is not, and Papa Christu ends up being a relatively narrow holding, even though Douglas's draft really resembles his concurrence in Doe versus Bolton. It is a sort of affirmation of all kinds of new freedoms based on all kinds of potential constitutional provisions. So, Having seen that, I want to I ask you, Risa, um, has this experience of working with the court's relationship to vagrancy, um, somewhat different project from your first book, has that changed your view about doctrine? Has it, I mean, I would argue that doctrinal pathways are very important that the court's choice of going void for vagueness versus substantive due process makes a great deal of difference. You, you've now demonstrated that it does. So uh, are you coming, are you moving toward the internalists? I, I was always half internalist, half externalist, and uh, this is on, right? Can you hear me? 
Yeah, okay. Um, I think I was always half of both, I think, uh, growing up in a place with uh, Chuck McCurdy, Barry Cushman, Ted White, and Mike Klarman. Uh, so I, I always imbibed from both of those, um, and, and I continue to. I do think, uh, you know, that my first book thought those pathways were really important too, right? My critique of Brown is that the pathway it took cut off real material inequality as a, as a constitutional question and, and led us on a, a pathway toward more formal uh, ways of thinking about civil rights. And I, I think that's true here. Um, the thing that, so now my ambivalences are complete. You have hit on the final one. Uh, the, the thing that was different about this book was uh, how much time I spent at the court. So I think that in both books, I take the doctrine seriously. I, I do think that the external uh, 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 causes are really crucial, and I, I'm not a complete internalist, and I think that the external um, uh, uh, results are really important, but I think that the way doctrine gets articulated is critical to the way people outside the court understand what law is, what their rights are, uh, how they make arguments, and how they, they go back at it. My students will tell you I, I, I draw a picture of a series of volcanoes where you start with social life, and at the bottom it's really wide, and lawyers, uh, litigants and lawyers narrow what the question is, and then uh, the, the court gives it new doctrinal meaning, and then you get a new volcano in which that's just one piece of all the things that go into uh, uh, that process. Um, but one of, one of my final ambivalences about this book was that it was so centered on the court, and that my original questions were really about Papa Christu, and they, they started at the court, whereas my first book really started with farm workers uh, who were being held in involuntary servitude. And that seemed like a big change for me, which is why the humanity part was so important. But what I realized was, uh, and Laura referred to this, right, thinking about methodological issues, I'm not sure it matters so much where you start if you're committed to looking at how important the doctrinal pathways are all the way up and down the legal process, right? It, and I think I maintain that commitment uh, even as the court became a bigger player. So you can take that as a yes if, if you want. <laughs> Chuck McCurry. And my first book was blue, so when you put them together, it really works. Not on purpose. What happened to people out of place? So the sad answer is the people who wanted to sell my book thought that was not a catchy title. Uh, but, but I will say the, the real answer also actually goes to not only the title, which is Vagrant Nation, but the subtitle the first phrase of which is police power. And that goes back to what I was just saying. I don't think police power would have been in the subtitle of my book when I began. Uh, and that's not because the police weren't crucial players and from the start. Uh, but they, th th at this moment, 
a piece of the book that is particularly resonant is the question of how much power do the police have, uh, how do they get to use it, what kind of accountability do they have, and so that became more important. Um, I did manage, and, and this was a question I had, People Out of Place came out of an early effort to find a single vocabulary with which to describe why all the different people who were arrested for vagrancy were arrested, and what I realized was there was no, so people were suggesting to me not conformity or liberty or autonomy and I, I kept thinking about all these things and it turned out there wasn't a single one because that wasn't the case for everyone right the african-american walking down the street he wasn't trying to non-conform he wasn't choosing to be out of place and the language of being out of place and being arrested for being out of place comes directly from police manuals uh, from the time you are suspicious if you are out of place if you are unusual that's something to look for and it comes out of the cases and the arguments that the lawyers make and so I really use that language and I felt really sad when it fell out of the title uh, but I made sure that it remained an animating theme within the book and it's still the language that I use to describe what the nature of the problem is in the book uh, but it's hard to it's hard to beat vagrant nation I think as a as a catchy title Josh Bowers So yes, uh, but I think actually they're not the only ones, right? So as I wrote this book, lots of people said to me, this is the new vagrancy. That So uh, vehicular traffic stops, uh, low-level drug crimes in certain communities, uh, uh, housing violations in other communities, as well as laws that were already on the books, like disorderly conduct and breach of the peace, and then more specifically conduct-oriented vagrancy laws, like loitering with intent to you know, distribute narcotics or uh, solicit prostitution or uh, things like that. So uh, I think the answer is definitely yes, and these laws are being used that way. One of the things, I, I think two things about that. One thing I think about that is 
wow, takes a lot of different laws to replace what only vagrancy used to do. I mean, not to say only vagrancy. There were also lots of other laws. And in each category of person that I talk about, I describe the whole constellation of laws around that, right? So for gay men, it wasn't just vagrancy or lewd vagrancy. It was also sodomy and solicitation, all kinds of other things. Um, but vagrancy did a lot of this work. And replicating the work that vagrancy did is quite costly, uh, both in terms of personnel, in terms of passing laws, in terms of prosecutions. Uh, and, and, and so it's harder to do what used to be done. Uh, and all these laws are kind of vying for the new vagrancy laws. But un unless the court changes its mind about Papa Christou, which is possible, right? Uh, they can't ever actually approximate what the vagrancy law regime did, which was v invisible and hidden and totally flexible. Um, but that's not to say that a lot of the work isn't still being done, and to the person on the street, uh, they're not still being stopped. So that leads me to the second thing, which I meant to say before, so I'm glad to have the opportunity now, um, which, which goes in part to these questions about the payoff again, which is, um, as I wrote the book, it became clear to me that I could have written essentially the same book I wrote the first time. And the end of the book really could have been, oh, Papa Christou could have given us real rights, substantive due process rights, uh, and it didn't, and so we had a lost promise. And I didn't want to write that book. And instead, the book I wrote, which I, I think is the right way to go, is, that, is about the, the essentially and inherently limited nature of what law can do. Uh, and law does some things, it, turn, it does formal things better than material things, right? And in this book, the form that took was, it is easier to get rid of a category of laws, even a category of laws 400 years entrenched in every state, than it is to change the behavior of police officers on the street. Uh, and throughout the book, there's this tension uh, among the lawyers about which of those is the problem we need to solve. And I think that the, the, the pressure of constitutional litigation pushes them eventually toward challenging the laws alone uh, and partially what happens in Terry. It's a non-starter after a certain point to challenge what the police officers are doing. And so I don't mean this to be a full story of triumph. I mean it to be a story that also shows us the limits of the law that even when you do have the decline and fall of a whole category of really important laws, that doesn't translate uh, instantly, immediately, or ever into, you know, full wholesale change on the street in police behavior or citizens' experience of police behavior. Uh, and, and I think that what John said is right. It, it creates new boundaries and new rules. And I think those rules, as Ted says, have consequences, have real consequences in the world, but they don't, they don't mean complete success or triumph by any means. We have Kim, Kim Ford-Mazary. Uh, that's exactly right. And I will say uh, one of the wonderful things about being on this faculty that shows in this book is the role of the police officers. Uh, the book is really a history of the downfall of vagrancy laws, and it's really a history of the campaign against vagrancy laws. And so the major protagonists are the people who are arrested and the lawyers who are challenging. But from the very beginning, my colleagues here said to me, the police officers have to 
have humanity too, and they have to be people whose motivations we understand uh, and who are not just doing this for no reason, right? And, uh, and so they are not the main protagonists, but I do try throughout the book to understand what they think they're doing uh, and the, the, the constituencies that have pressure on them, right, from within police departments and from within communities and elites, as well as their own position in the world and their own training as police officers, right? So I say this about the manuals, right? The manuals say if you're out of place, you're suspicious. Well, a lot of the time that's true, right? So uh, so what are you supposed to do about that? Uh, and I think that the, the moment of Terry and the reason why there's so much uh, complexity here is the police can't always tell uh, the difference between uh, difference that is dangerous and difference that is not dangerous. And I think that one of the things that happens in the 60s when, when Rufus wakes up is that a lot of kinds of difference that had been dangerous no longer are. But that doesn't mean that there's no longer danger. Uh, and I think the police always have to be attentive to what the danger is. And, and they struggle with with that, uh, uh, and one of the one of the things you see in in the the defense of the laws over time, which is how the police really come up here, is um, most police officers and most prosecutors by the end of this period are no longer defending the social control uses of vagrancy laws. They most of them are not saying, yeah. I'm going to just arrest a hippie because he's a hippie. Most of them are saying, please leave us this little piece that we still really need in order to do preventive crime control. Uh, and and, and so, so they evolve too over this period. Uh, uh, and, and, and I think they are part of the majoritarian consensus that grows over this time that it really isn't okay to arrest a person just for being who they are. George Rutherglen? Uh, so I, I don't I don't know about that. I, I uh, let me think about that as I as I talk about one piece of that question, which is um, part of why it wasn't a backlash was because by the time Papa Christou was de decided, it really seemed inevitable. These cases had been coming to the Supreme Court for 20 years. They had seen more than a dozen of them and avoided answering the question. Uh, lots of lower federal courts uh, and some state courts had already found them unconstitutional. And for at least five, if not 10 years, many police departments had already stopped using them. Uh, the writing was on the wall, as Anne said in her comments, right? The, the, the Supreme Court is late to this party. Now, maybe that becomes, in constitutional theory terms, you know, an argument, uh, a Clarman-esque argument for waiting for greater social, political, and legal consensus about an issue before the court rules, right? Because there wasn't backlash here. They were so late. I don't mean it that way. I'm not making constitutional theory here, but I think you can read it that way, uh, that the groundwork was really, uh, was really created. Um, 
In terms of the backlash for substantive due process, the substantive due process part of the story is really one of the most bewildering. Uh, it, when when the case when the case first gets to the court in 1971, uh, Justice Douglas is still uh, adamantly opposed to using substantive due process. Uh, he uses the Ninth Amendment in uh, uh, for those students out there. This should be exciting because you always want to use the Ninth Amendment. Uh, he uses the Ninth Amendment as his basis, and it takes him several drafts before he goes to substantive due process. Uh, Brennan also is more interested in the Ninth Amendment than he is in reviving substantive due process. And by the time, you know, he writes his opinion, it's substantive due process, but that makes some justices nervous and they won't go along with it. And then a year later in Roe, suddenly it's the majority opinion. And I, I have looked into that quite a lot and I have a few answers, but not enough. And I think it's a question that still needs to be answered. Um, my inclination is to say, it, the basis of the opinion would make some difference because I am somewhat of an internalist and I think had the court announced a right to live a life of high spirits uh, and dissent and be nonconformist, which was the language that Justice Douglas used, that was the right he was going to embed in the Constitution, I think that would have made a splash. Uh, uh, I, I certainly do and I think it would have changed the course of what the replacements for vagrancy laws look like because I think that doctrine is important. Um, but I still think at the at the end of the day, and this goes back to my answer to Kim, the police were largely reconciled with this. Uh, and the people who had been opposed to it had largely seen that that this form of police authority didn't seem so legitimate anymore. Time for one more. Any out there? John Moore? I was going to say and include all the panels. I apologize I wasn't including the panelists before. I don't think they were questions you could have answered. But this one uh, is not for me. It's a bigger question. So I'm, I'm done. No? All right, Ted? Well, I'm, I'm not sure exactly what you mean by jurisprudence. Of course, this is a period when, when the first cracks in process jurisprudence are emerging. I mean, process jurisprudence is been the dominant posture for commentators, academic commentators for the court, and process jurisprudence emphasizes things like neutral principles and institutional commitment, and that is very, that is beginning to be historicized at the very time that, that the Papa Christu comes down. So it, it, you know, one might hypothesize that the court, except I, I wouldn't, but one might, <laughs> that the that the court is feeling more freewheeling um, be, because some of the sort of process strictures are, are, but the court doesn't pay much attention to the academic community's debates and Justice Douglas may have been feeling freewheeling, but I, I don't think he, uh, in, in fact, I, I, one of the things I wanted to mention earlier was uh, Risa has come up with a memorandum 
internal memorandum that Brennan wrote to Douglas about Papa Christou, and it's really quite fascinating because Brennan says, on the one hand, look, I, I don't think, I'm nervous about a far-reaching opinion in this case. I think we just ought to decide it narrowly. I'm worried about these new guys on the court. Uh, I don't, you know, there's seven of us now. I don't know when this case is going to be decided, and I think I, I'm urging you to put it out in a narrow version. And <laughs> Douglas, of course, completely ignores him and, and puts it out as broadly as possible. But Brennan also says, and by the way, I agree with you about these freedoms. And then he gives a very detailed list of substantive due process type freedoms. And I just thought that was fascinating. But, but as, to, as to jurisprudence generally, I, I'm skeptical, John. Right, so I'll add one, I'll add, I'll add, uh, one thing, which is uh, those, that list is what shows up in Doe Do versus Bolton. Uh, Douglas really writes Brennan's memo into his concurrence uh, to Roe v. Wade. It is, it is very, very close, which is quite amazing. Um, I do think this is a moment in which the court is trying to figure out who counts as a constitutionally protected actor and how to count them. And the internal memos, and I, I, didn't, I wasn't able to put enough of this in the book, and I hope to write a, an article about this, but the internal memos show they're not sure if they're protecting people or protecting rights. The internal memos show they're not sure if they're going to give heightened scrutiny to groups other than African Americans, right, before they get to women. Uh, Blackman writes a memo in the case of Belter v. Boris, which is about some hippie-type students in a, in a uh, a, a neighborhood uh, uh, who gets zoned out, and he says, we've been beating around this intermediate scrutiny bish for a long time. Maybe we need to articulate this. And I, so I do think, for all the reasons that Laura says, for the confluence of social, political, and legal changes that are going on at this moment, there's this big question of how big are those changes, and how much does the Constitution have to say to them? Uh, and, I, and I think Douglas thinks a lot. Uh, and, I, and, and one of the goals of the book is to show how lots Lots of legal developments and doctrinal developments that we've thought of as separate until now, at least some people thought of together, in part because all the different people were regulated by vagrancy laws and they come up together, and in part because the justices themselves, as a product of this moment, are seeing all these different people out of place and asking how, do, how does the Constitution protect them, who should the Constitution protect, and to what extent. All right, thank you all for coming. Thanks to the panelists and to Risa. Enjoy the reception.